0: Good morning,
1: Northview. Last weekend, we just took a team of students and adults down to the Tenderloin in San Francisco. Um, And as many of you have already heard me say why we're going, it was really organized under three main reasons. One was because we desperately as a community want to practice the way of Jesus. We do not want to be a community that accidentally gets tricked into thinking that Christianity is just about knowledge acquisition. Uh, Jesus was a teacher, so obviously knowledge was incredibly important to him, but his way of knowledge, so to speak, was so much different than the religious of his day. In apprenticeship to Jesus, learning from him is literally only the beginning of being formed by him. In Jesus' way of knowledge, knowledge must actually change you. otherwise it's useless. And I think we actually intuit that pretty like it's like, yeah. Knowledge doesn't change me, it's pointless. And it has to change you in a way that doesn't just store up personal piety just for yourself, but also pours out into all your other relationships and all other aspects of your life, to your family, to your neighbors, and in Jesus' way, even to your enemies. Or put another way, knowledge must change who you are in such a way that it changes what comes out of you. The second reason we went was to learn from an organization that has been working with the homeless in the Tenderloin for 28-plus years. This wasn't something that Northview had done before, um, so we were looking around for local orga- organizations that we wanted to work with because we wanted to desperately work with the homeless that we have here in Seattle or in Everett. But after some trouble, James had some friends that had known and worked with this organization in the Tenderloin, and they were ready and able to take our entire group in and to teach us. And they had this similar goal. that that we had, they wanted us to actually learn from them so we could bring it back here and work with the homeless in Seattle or in Everett, which is a beautiful thing. And the third reason um, was so that we would become the type of people that don't actually need events or a weekend retreat to practice the will of God. We want to use events or retreats as a community in so far as they aid us in becoming like Jesus in the rest of our lives, not just when we actually sign up for it. Put another way, these are just like means to an end. And the end is that we become like Jesus. And if the end ever becomes that you just do the event, it's time to reassess. But for the weekend, we were the hands and feet of this organization, um, helping run their ministries that they are doing year round for their homeless neighbors. Just by sheer bodies, we are able to expand their work and the amount of people that they could reach out to and care drastically. Our team, ranging from literally 11 years old to 70 years old, working with the homeless and the tenderloin, arrived with very little knowledge, very little experience, and for many of us, a huge theological gap of why we would even be there in the first place. But the team, this is so beautiful to me, the team, regardless of all that, just had a commitment to the way of Jesus and just wanted to do it. Praise God that we have young people in our midst that just desperately want to practice Jesus' way. Uh, Fast forward to the end of the weekend, and they have us like a debrief with them. They have us write down the names that we can remember of the homeless people that we interacted with. And we ended up with a list around somewhere 300-ish people of names that we had remembered, of people we had interactions with and cared for when we were there. And this was the most shocking thing. The organization was blown away by our group of 11-year-olds up to 70 um, by how well we engaged and cared for the homeless. And it, you know, this is an organization that has a bunch of YWAM teams coming to them that are 18 plus, they're planning on being missionaries, and here's a team that has very little experience in serving any homeless, and they were blown away by the level of care that we had and the, the way we engaged. Usually they have to like, hand-hold interactions and like, coach people into interacting with them, but a team of 25 of us just like, dispersed and cared. It was beautiful, yeah. In the evenings, just as a brief overview of what we do, in the evenings we go out offering warm, hot chocolate to the local homeless neighbors, and then we'd also extend an offer for prayer if they wanted any, and that was a door into the most beautiful conversations that many of our people had. We'd invite them back to the Ellis Room, which was the base that we were at, for resources that the organization offered throughout the rest of the week. We opened up, up, up the facility for cereal in the morning and cartoons and just had three hours where we just spent time with the homeless people that would trickle in and spend time with us. One of the evenings, we opened open up the entire evening because it was raining outside. We got to spend some extra time with them then. Largely, we would welcome and spend time with them. We would, we would go out and pray over the city was one of the activities that we did, praying over specific places uh, particularly like my group, for instance, prayed over places where there was heavy traffic of children. So we'd go to schools and pray for the children that go to these schools. And we hosted church with the organization on the street. Everything that we did was just so relational. I haven't done a, much, a bunch of missional trips, but this was the most relational missional trip that I've ever gotten to do where I actually got to interact with the people I went there for. So that's just how the organization has participate in what they're doing. Ultimately, this organization's team is just a tiny group of people that are trying to live by, Jesus's, by the power of Jesus' spirit in an incredibly dark place. And that, that wasn't my assessment. I, like, three of the people that I talked to that I had long-form conversations with, homeless people, I would get to this point, I'm like, what do you think about the tenderloin? And all of them used the exact, this exact word, evil. And a lot of them would use the word, it's so chaotic out here. So it's a few people, the spirit of God, surrounded by evil. And this is just so beautiful to me, because it's God doing his thing. Out of the chaos, God is trying to, with his people, make a sort of oasis, a sort of Eden, a sort of garden smack dab in the center of a city like San Francisco, like the Tenderloin. These people partnering with God are trying to bring the kingdom of God to a place that most people, most people have simply abandoned. All of our work with them, I believe, gets to live on because of two things. One is because every single thing that we would do is connected to a local organization that's been there for 30 years. So we would always point back to this place in their neighborhood that they can continue to seek help and love. And it was, again, right in the midst of their neighborhood. But two... Uh, Praise God that his spirit is not bound by our bodies. Praise God that his work wasn't on pause until we showed up. Uh, We ultimately got to show up and participate in the things that he was already doing present in the Tenderloin. It was shocking Uh, You know, I don't think this organization's goal is to end homelessness in the Tenderloin. I think they know that's impossible. But it was shocking to see how they had literally changed the homeless community in their midst. The further you got away from the Tenderloin, the harsher it got. Sorry, the further you got away from the YWAM facility, the harsher it got. They had actually impacted the community in their midst, which was just shocking to me. Now, coming back here, talking with our team, getting to debrief with some of them, it sounds like almost every person wants to go back and to continue to work with people in the Tenderloin, which is shocking to me. How many people do you know that want to go spend time in the Tenderloin? And even more so, it sounds like almost every person wants to bring this work back to here so we can begin caring for the poor in our midst. Uh, Now, you're about to hear a few stories from some of our youth on the team, if Ari and Thomas could come up. Um, But before they share... We just wanted you, because we're looking forward to next year right now. What are we going to do next year, and what are we going to do reoccurringly or regularly as a community here? We wanted to ask that you would join us in praying, but also searching for a local organization that we could partner with, uh, preferably in Everett, so we could partner with them in caring for the poor regularly as a community. And it's really important to us that while we do this work, that we are doing it with an organization that's in the midst of the issue, so that they can help, just belong, help beyond just relational care. Uh, so yeah, please join us in searching. If you find anything, reach out to me, reach out to James, reach out to any of the staff. We'd love to hear it. Now, Thomas Bertoli will be sharing. He was one of the guys that went on the trip.
2: Hello. I usually go to second service, so a lot of these are unfamiliar faces. But going into the trip, I wasn't particularly worried about like meeting the homeless because I have a, a my previous boss at Pizza Hut used to be homeless and a drug dealer and then he turned out to be one of the nicest people I ever met and one of the best managers I think I'll ever have in my life. So really my main issue was just not exactly wanting to drive fourteen and a half hours to sleep in a bed other than my own and then also lose my entire midwinter break while doing that but i feel like god was still calling me and it was still my duty to faith to do this mission and throughout the entire mission a lot of the leaders were saying like this we're not trying to get anything out of this this isn't a transaction with god we're doing this just to do god's will but i did want to see something happen i did want to see a change in myself and i did want to see a change in others and i feel like that's that's what i got I had the pleasure of speaking to multiple people, including a police officer, so I got to see different perspectives of what was going on. The police officer made it clear that just the government and leaving it to the police wasn't going to be enough. They didn't have the resources, and a lot of things got stuck behind a wall of bureaucracy, so it was difficult for them to give the homeless the proper help that they wanted, even though that a lot of these people are passionate about helping the homeless. And that was the same for YWAM. They didn't have the resources just with the few people that they had. They needed other people to help. But it didn't seem insurmountable to help these people. When we have a group that's willing and fueled by passion for God and doing God's will, it's not difficult to talk to these people. The homeless aren't, like, they're not just homeless. They are real people. They have their own struggles. And it's easy to love them. The three personal connections I made were with people named Daniel, who I played Stratego with, Christoph, who I got to pray over and he was in tears as I prayed, and Paul, who had interesting theology but was still willing to hear what I had to say. All it took for me to overcome any fear of talking to these people, you just needed to cast aside your judgment of how they may have gotten into that place and how they may have ended up where they are and just love them as they were. And when you spoke to them as they were and you showed them care, they were willing to talk. The three I talked to in particular were very receptive of everything I had to say and were willing to share their past, which I thought was a very beautiful thing. And even though there were others that weren't willing to converse or were not as receptive, they still like would accept hot chocolate and wish you a good day. There were very few that were just openly rude. So before the trip, I may have thought that just leaving the duty to help others and help the poor and the homeless was just up to those volunteers at YWAM, because if other people are doing it, I don't, like, why should I? But I don't really see that way of being true. As I was speaking to Zeb on the car ride home, and he let me just share my thoughts and, like, understand really what I felt in that moment, I no longer really see a way of being true to my faith and not helping these people. Jesus calls us to do so, And so I wish that in every day in my life, and hopefully in the lives of others at this church, we can help these people just day to day. Thank you.
0: Going into this missions trip, I had no real idea of what we would be doing. I had never worked with, or even been around, homeless before, and I had no experience during missions trips, so I was nervous. Before arriving at church Wednesday, I struggled through emotions of fear and anxiety while packing my bags at home. Stories and advice told by my family and friends to keep me safe only made me feel more nervous. Once we finally arrived in San Francisco and pulled up outside of the YWAM building, my dad told our car to stay inside and wait for him. I looked out the window and saw tents lined up along the wall of YWAM. Homeless people were walking right outside and even sitting feet away from the door we needed to go through. I remember thinking, this is what we are doing? It was beyond what I had imagined. What surprised me, though, was watching the YWAM outreach director, Lillian, as she directed where we were to go. She did not look scared or nervous. She had a big smile on her face and looked at peace, even while standing just a few feet from a homeless guy crouched on the sidewalk, not moving. I wondered how she could be so calm. Later Friday night, we had an orientation which described exactly what we would be doing. It was called hot chocolate. The whole point was to walk around the Tenderloin District with jugs of hot chocolate and ask people if they wanted a cup and have a conversation with them. I was scared not only of them, but of saying something off limits. During that night, I watched James Lunn, who was our leader for that night, interact with them, give them the cup of cocoa, ask their name, and if they wanted prayer. He set an example for us to follow and showed us we did not have anything to fear. When all the teams came back from doing hot chocolate, I realized I had had fun. Over the weekend, I found my view of the homeless changing from being terrifying and worth ignoring to being able to have a conversation with them, looking forward to seeing them the next day, and reaching a point of familiarity where they were wishing us a safe ride home, wanting hugs, and thanking us for coming out. By the time we left, I realized I felt at home in a kind of run-down building in the middle of the Tenderloin. Weaving through the streets and the homeless felt safe, and conversing with them felt easier. Once we stopped treating them like the world thinks they should be treated, we found people similar to ourselves. People who had passions for dogs, were philosophers, parents, grandparents, husbands and wives, and mathematicians. People who wanted to get out of homelessness had developed plans to do so but we also met one who chose to stay homeless to be a testimony to his neighbors. We never know the story of why they are there until we ask. If we do ask, we might find someone we relate to, someone who could speak into our lives and bring us joy while we are trying to bring them joy. Coming out of this missions trip, I do not want to go back to ignoring them. I want to still feel comfortable performing what I learned at YWAM here where I live, even if all that I do is meet their eyes and smile and wave fulfilling the desire every human has of being seen and loved
1: amen may we all become more childlike ah amen.
3: Amen. Oh, so good thank you thomas ariana and zeb that is awesome oh my goodness my heart has been so full since uh, since being there it's been so beautiful um those you, I, I, my wife and i've been missionaries for about 25 years and uh I've been on countless outreaches over that time, and this was honestly one of my favorites, to go with kids from 11 to 70 and to see them so beautifully engaged in a community that's often just ostracized and marginalized and and, and, and not considered. Um, Some of the short-term trips I've gone on over the years, you come back and you're kind of like, was there any value in what we did? I don't know if you've been on a trip like that, you're like... maybe we should just send some cash instead of actually going with and spending all this time and money. Uh, Some of them kind of feel like that. And this one was absolutely the opposite of that. Every aspect was so beautiful. And the way that we were able to have an impact on the kingdom and impact lives who were there and see our own lives impacted as well. And I mean, multiple people gave their lives to Christ, we were there, we had touch points with hundreds of people, if not over a thousand people we actually talked to as a group, we were able to connect long-term, uh, connect the people that were there to long-term ministries and, and missionaries who are continuing to, be able to pour into them as we leave, and, and, and so thank you so much to all who gave, a number of you made this possible to even get it to reasonable cost, to, they'll do that by giving, thank you, thank you, thank you for doing that, and thank you for the parents here that were willing to send your kids, and the courage to send your children with us, and, and to release them onto this, we say thank you so much to you as well for the drivers and those that came along it was so beautiful and for those who didn't come you missed out (laughs) i'll be honest that's okay to say um and but don't worry there's going to be future opportunities and be many of them here locally and other stuff regionally that we're going to be part of because this was amazing the lord is continuing to move us as a church body into our surrounding community and specifically to the marginalized for those who are needy and those who are hurting and so that's what we're going to be looking at today uh what God is doing, and how we are called to work amongst those in the margins of society. In the coming months, we're going to look a lot more at this. With really, coming back, it's, it, was, it was to go and see, Lord, what do you want to do? And now coming back, we're starting to reassess, okay, Lord, how is it that you want us to engage more specifically? So it's not just random attempts, but something strategic that partners with local organizations that actually builds and has long-term impact, as well as enabling our body to have opportunities to do that, that will then foster personal ways of life and change. And so we'll be talking a lot more about that coming up, but that brings me to today's message where we're talking about Acts chapter 15, or possibly chapter 11, as you'll see. Um, I told you I was going to pick up the pace, didn't I, after I did four four weeks on one verse in chapter one, and so now we're jumping 14 chapters, Uh, so you can, we're we're going to go through it quick, No, we're actually going back to chapter two next week, Um, but uh, we're jumping to 15 for a text I'm looking for. So after spending the week living and spending time amongst those that are on the margins of society and the poorest of the poor, uh, I, I wanted to speak of it from scripture. And while there's over 2,000 verses in the Bible that address the reality of poverty and the needy and those who are hurting, um, Acts chapter 15 is a great starting point as it's the centerpiece of the book of Acts that we're in right now. And so a quick bit of context as we enter into this text. So, in the coming chapters of before, from 1 to 15, what we're going to see is that the disciples are partially obeying Jesus' command back in chapter 1 verse 8. Where remember, he told them, you will be empowered by the Spirit when you go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They partially obey it because they get the first part, Jerusalem. But they really don't want to do any of the other parts, right? And in the fact, they avoid it. They have a deep amount of, as we'll talk increasingly about, pride and, and prejudice and racism in their heart against the Gentile people and the Samaritans. And so they avoid the rest, but they just stay in Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem only talking to fellow Jews. And so God raises up this man named Paul. Saul at the time, Paul calls him as the apostle to the Gentiles. And, and as he begins to reach out to the Gentiles, not everyone celebrates, A ton of people, even some of the chief leaders of the church, are really angry about this because they don't believe the gospel should go to Gentiles. And if it does, they need to be circumcised. They need to become Jewish and follow the Jewish law if they want to receive the promises of God. And so Acts chapter 15 is the center of the book of Acts. It's kind of like the climax of it as everything is made understood in this chapter. It begins this way in verse 1. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria... Some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers. Unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, and arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and the elders about this question. So the leaders of the church called Paul back to Jerusalem to give an account of how God is moving amongst these heathen Gentiles. Because they didn't even know if God could really do this. And we'll see as we walk through, through Acts how deep that prejudice is, that they still couldn't figure this out, despite the entirety of the Old Testament, despite what Peter had, these incredible revelations. It still didn't get through their heads, as we're going to see. And so they call Paul back and say, is God really doing these things? Is this really God? And, and in that process, they finally actually celebrate. They go, wow, God actually loves the Gentiles. Who knew? The entirety of the Old Testament, for one. But who knew? right? Who knew God actually did that? And they're just blown away. And so they say, we release you. And they send them out and they say, go and keep doing that. It's a massive deal as God's heart is proclaimed from all the apostles that God is actually comes to the Gentiles world as well, right? And so this is that major moment. And back in the book of Galatians, chapter two, Paul recounts this story. And he refers back to this meeting and he describes what happens, that they encouraged him to go reach to the Gentiles And he says they only had one requirement of him. Now, a quick side note here for my fellow Bible nerds. This is why I said Acts chapter 15 slash chapter 11, because what we see here in chapter 2 of Galatians, we're going to look at it in a second, There's different scholars have different views of whether this is a reference to Acts chapter 15 that he's talking about, which is the Jerusalem Council, or whether it's a reference to Acts chapter 11, which was the famine visit that Paul made, right? And so there's different debates upon that. I'm quite convinced it's chapter 15. If you're a fellow nerd like me, you want to talk about it, I'm happy to discuss why 15 or 11. It doesn't matter, but it doesn't change the substance of what I'm saying, or even the point of it. just want to throw that out. I can be wrong. In fact, I think it was just Just two weeks ago, I stood up here, and I had like a brain fart while preaching, and I attributed Mary Magdalene to being the mother of Jesus. Some of you may have caught that. I know many of you did because I appreciate all the gentle emails and texts and conversations, um, which brought me incredible joy. I, seriously, I enjoyed it because it, it, it affirmed to me the incredible biblical literacy in our midst uh, that people were able to pick up on. That's a beautiful, wonderful thing. And everyone was gentle. I appreciate it. Most people are like, James, I don't want to make you feel bad. I want to be one of those email people. And I get it. I thank you so much. I genuinely appreciate it. But uh, yes, I can be wrong, and I, and I was in that case, um, and often am. So, okay, side note over. So, In Galatians 2 now, Paul is talking about how the apostles are releasing him to go reach the Gentile world, to preach the gospel. And he says, now, when they do that, he says, there's one thing they told me to to, to focus upon. One thing. It could be anything. Like, think of all the things that you would add on. Say, really focus on this one thing. So many doctrines that you could hammer in of atonement or eschatology or the rapture, all sorts of stuff that you could say, this one thing is so important to remember. But Paul says there's one thing. Thing that they emphasized. Galatians chapter 2, verse 10. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. The very thing I had been eager to do all along. This is the one thing the apostles said must accompany the gospel. The one thing they must focus upon. The only thing that they emphasized that he must do is he takes the gospel out, which at that point the apostles were refusing to do. They would not leave the city. The one thing remember the poor. That's it. Don't forget it, they say. As you tell people about Jesus, they say. As the Spirit does signs and wonders all around you, as people come to Christ, that's awesome. But don't forget. Don't forget the poor. And look at Paul's response. Does he say, wow, I mean, that's a great point. I never thought of that. Or do you say, wow, I mean, if I have to, I mean, I guess I can add that in if there's room or time. But you say, what do you think I am? Some like social justice warrior, woke socialist or something? I'm not going to do stuff like that. No, what does he say? Of course I will. Duh. That's the one thing I've been focusing on already. I already knew that caring for the poor is synonymous with following Jesus. I would never consider pointing people to Jesus without the central reality of caring for the poor. Obviously, that's what I'm doing, because it's what I've been doing, and it's what I'm going to continue to do, because I know the heart of Jesus, just like you. For those who knew Jesus, who were discipled by Jesus, they can't claim to know Jesus and not be actively caring for the poor among them. Otherwise, they know it's not the gospel. It's not the good news of Jesus. They say that caring for the poor cannot be separated from following Jesus. It's not an optional add-on. It's at the very center and the heart of following Him. It can't be divorced. Amen? But let's just be honest. For many of us today, and I don't mean just in this room, for Christians today, do we as a whole see caring for the poor as central to following Jesus? Or do we tend to see them as two separate things? I mean, yes, people must know Jesus, obviously. And if you're led, I mean, if it's your ministry, if it's your thing, yeah, go care for the poor. Cool, great thing. We'll honor you. We'll even give you some cash to go do it. Have fun. Go do your thing if you feel called. But if you do, don't make too big a deal of it. Right? Because then you'll be called a social justice warrior or given that worst label of all, woke. Right? Why? Why? how did this happen? How do we get from Jesus' words to that understanding? I think something happened back a long time ago, to the core of Christianity, back when Christianity went from being a persecuted religion, back in the 300s, To when it became celebrated and Emperor Constantine became a Christian, adopted Christianity as the, 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 the faith of the empire. And he then made it not just the faith of the empire, he gave it status and wealth and privilege and power and all these other things. And not so shockingly at the same time, the focus on the poor began to disappear and fell off the map completely. As the church actually became a place of position and power and prestige and status. Now there's a lot of exceptions throughout history, but they tend to be the exceptions. Yet, Scripture is so abundantly clear on this. At some point, we're going to take a lot more time on this. I mean, there's literally hundreds of verses in Scripture detailing exactly God's heart for the poor and those that are needy. And there's over 2,000, we're broadly speaking of it. To read through the entirety of Scripture and not see God's heart for the poor is to miss God's heart entirely. Because it's so interwoven in Scripture. But that's exactly what I did for much of my life, to be honest. I'll be honest, for many years as a Christian and as a missionary, I didn't care too much about the poor, unless I was kind of guilted to do so in a moment for an event that we would take part in. It wasn't something I'd grown up expecting about what it meant to be, other than maybe like once a year as my youth group, we would go and feed the homeless down in Pioneer Square, and that would kind of be our one good deed of the year. Um, the closest I got to poverty, or what, the, what, dealing with the poor, living in suburban Blinwood at the time, was I had a friend going at elementary school, I remember, who, used, who lived in a trailer park. And I didn't know that was actually poor in the area over near Everett. And I thought it was cool they he got to camp every day. I just thought that was awesome. I was jealous of him that he basically got to camp as a lifestyle. And that was so cool. And it didn't make sense to me. Why my parents would like, buy him clothes and pay for his stuff, other stuff. like that's, that's the only connection I had to poverty in any way growing up. And then for years as a missionary, it was something I never even thought about. For years, serving God around the globe. It wasn't really on my brain. It was like, oh, those people are called to the pool, like Mother Teresa types. Until I went and did my Bible school. In the Bible school, we started the New Testament going book by book through every book of the Bible. And there's endless passages there. And every once in a while, something would pique my interest. And I'd write about it and study it. And then we got back to the Old Testament, started in Genesis, and started going through. And verse after verse after verse, just kind of, every once in a while, I'd make some comments and write some things about it. And like, yeah, we need to do this, but it never hit. Psalms and Proverbs Endless verses somehow never hit. Then finally we got to Isaiah. And the Holy Spirit hit me with a sledgehammer. Isaiah chapter 1 opens, speaking of all their offerings and sacrificing, their bring, sacrifice they bring to God. Sacrifice and offerings, remember, that God has commanded them to bring. And here's what it says, starting in verse 11. God says, what makes you think I want your sacrifices? Says the Lord. I'm sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings, it disgusts me. Remember, these are things he had commanded of them. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. that he commanded them for honor, right? They're a burden to me. I cannot stand them. God says he's disgusted by their worship. He says, it's all meaningless. All their sacrifices mean nothing. Yet these were the things he commanded them to do. And Malachi says, I want to take the dung of the animals and just wipe it on your faces. That's how I feel about your worship. Then God says in verse 15, when you lift your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. For your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. God says he won't even listen to their prayers. He doesn't even want to hear their worship. And that's how he opens up the letter of Isaiah. I mean, could you imagine God telling you he stops listening to you? Doesn't want to hear you worship anymore? It says in 1 Corinthians, your, your worship is like a clinging symbol this loud gong. It's just annoying and loud. I want nothing to do with it. But why? Why is our God so disgusted with the things that he has told them to bring? It's because of how they treat the poor. The widows, the prisoners, the orphans, the marginalized of society. Next verse, verse 17. Learn to do good. Right? I just saw this shirt last week and I had to buy it. I... Learn to do good. I think this is actually some random like environmental company, but it's like literally quoting Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the right of widows. Why is God so disgusted? Because they weren't caring for the poor. The orphans. The widows. So God says he's not going to listen to them anymore until they learn to do good. Righteous and gain his heart for those people. I mean, that's crazy. Be honest, though, even that wasn't enough to convince me or change my heart. I remember that kind of buttered it up for what was to happen a few chapters later in chapter 58. And here's where I just got wrecked. I remember just spending hours in tears after this because my entire life had been spent as a missionary supposedly helping people around the world. Then we got to chapter 58. God starts off by saying, they think they're doing so well. Verse 2, they come to the temple every day, and they seem delighted to learn all about me. They ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending that they want to be near me. We fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed, God? Why We have been very hard on ourselves. We've sacrificed, and you don't even notice it, God. They're saying, God, look at all this awesome stuff we've been doing for you. I mean, daily, they're studying God's word. Daily, they're in prayer and going to the temple to learn. They're fasting. They're making huge sacrifices for God. They look awesome on the outside, that's for sure. They're doing all the right stuff. What they're doing is amazing. And they're saying, God, why don't you take notice? Why is this not enough for you, God? And that was me as a missionary. I was doing all this awesome stuff for God, seeing so many people come to Christ and training up all these people working in the most remote places on the planet amongst the unreached in central China, learning Mandarin. I was doing everything. God, I'm doing all this stuff. I was serving him. I was fasting. I was studying. I was worshiping. Why, God? And then he says this. I'll tell you why, God says. It's because you are fasting to please yourselves. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. And the issue there historically was they had indentured servants that they would make work, even on Sabbath and other times, right? Right? So it was an issue of poverty again. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of repentance or penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap and cover yourselves with ashes. Is this what you call fasting? Do you really think that this will please the Lord? God says, do you think that all you're doing impresses me? You're just doing it for yourself. You're just going through the motions. And then he hits him with a truth bomb. Verse 6. No, this is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. And here it is. He says, this is the kind of fast that he wants from his people. Are you ready for this? He says in verse 7, share your food with the hungry. Give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those that need them. And do not hide from relatives who need your help. How many understood that's God? That's a, God's kind of fast. And he doesn't stop. Verse 10, he says, feed the hungry. And here, literally, what he's saying in the original language is offer your life, being, off your being, spend yourself on behalf of, pour out yourself on behalf of the hungry and help those in trouble. Now, here in verse 10, it's not about giving money, as he's referring to. In fact, the New Living Translation I'm using here does a terrible job translating that Feed the Hungry passage. Because in the original Hebrew, what it's actually saying, as I said, is it literally says, Offer your life or being. Spend yourself on behalf of. Pour out your life for the hungry. That's so much more than writing a check, though checks are often needed. Or donating cash, though again, often needed. So much more than dropping off clothes, though that's in there as well. But this pour yourself out on behalf of is saying we need to be pouring out our life, our time, and energy on behalf of those who are hurting. And that requires sacrifice. And it can't be done from a distance. It has to be done up close. You have to be able to smell their breath. Or while we were down there, lots of other smells, right? And then God says, then your light will shine out from the darkness, and the darkness around you will be as bright as the noon. This is the heart of God. Notice he doesn't say treat the poor with equality. Treat them as you want to be treated. That's not what it says. He says they're supposed to have a special focus. Far better than equality. We have a special focus on the poor, the widows, the orphans, the homeless, the hungry, And I would add to that single moms and single dads. Again, widows are there because back in that time, widows would often become beggars and homeless without someone to care for them. They're not to be treated equally. They're to be given special treatment by God's people. Why? These are the ones that God identifies with the most. Jesus says he is the father to the fatherless. A husband to widows. And this is the passage that broke the dam in my heart of indifference many years ago. As a result, I switched course of what I was doing and I moved to some of the most remote corners of the globe to work with the, some of the most uh, hurting people in different places. And yet I found myself even doing that constantly having to reorient my heart as it just keeps moving back towards selfishness, keeps moving back towards my own comfort. And then especially once getting married and having kids, everything just keeps moving about my family, me and mine and me and mine. And it requires a constant reorientation, constantly back to the Lord to say, Father, use me to love the people that you care so much about. Give me your heart for those who are hurting. If I had time today, again, I would just go verse by verse by verse, but it would take us days of reading to go through all the passages here in the scripture. Over and over again, God identifies with the poor. He makes it so abundantly clear in Scripture that to follow God, to follow Jesus, is to care about what he cares about. And God cares deeply for the poor, the oppressed, the widows, the prisoners, the unjustly imprisoned, the immigrants in their midst, the foreigners. So much so that God says to not care about them is to not care about him. Check this out. Jeremiah chapter 22, God is speaking about King Josiah and what he did. This is one of the most challenging passages in Scripture. Verse 16, he says, He, King Josiah, gave justice and help to the poor and needy, and everything went well for him. Next line. Isn't that what it means to know me, says the Lord? God says to know him is to care for the poor and needy. To not care for the poor and needy, then, is to not know God. 1 John 3, 16 and 17, it's not there. Just a second, just think about that. but It's often this striking verse, New Testament. He's just quoting Jeremiah. When John says, if you have something and you do not give it to someone that is in need, the love of God is not in you. They're linked in the gospel. Do we get that? This is not a message to condemn or bring judgment or guilt or shame or anything like that because those guilt, condemnation, shame are short-lived. They may change a behavior once, but then the guilt goes away and so does the behavior. So this is nothing about shame or condemnation or, oh, we're terrible or anything else. I mean, many of us in this body are doing awesome, looking out and seeing so many of I know, our your lives are devoted to caring for those who are hurting. And it's beautiful looking out. And there's so many here that are foster parents and other things that have cared and loved and adopted. It's, there's so many beautiful people in our midst. I mean, all of you are, but um, there, there's so many things people are doing right now, engaging this so beautifully. And that's awesome. So this doesn't say we're doing it wrong, but it's a, I constantly need this reorientation myself for us to ask, in what ways have I ignored God's heart for the most vulnerable? Where has my heart grown calloused or indifferent or apathetic for the hungry, the houseless, the widows, the orphans, the immigrants? Where have we hardened our hearts, maybe intentionally or unintentionally, Do we see a central part of following Jesus is to sacrificially pour ourselves out on behalf of those who are hurting and the needy and the poor? I mean, it's inconvenient. It's a lot easier to write a check, though again, we still need to write a lot of those. It takes sacrifices of time and money. It often takes dealing with the fear and the pride that we may have, addressing the prejudices within our hearts to acknowledge where fear and social media and politics and just bad theology has hardened us and made us more indifferent, to ask God to increasingly align our hearts to his. And this is just a regular process. We are called to live and love like Jesus. Amen? For his heart to become our heart. For his ways to become our ways. And for those he cares the most about to be the people we care the most about. Amen? I'm going to have two more people share as we wrap up today, uh, about their experience. So first, Ryan.
4: Good morning. I gotta follow that up, geez. So I wanna share a powerful journey with you. uh, One that has reshaped, sorry, my perspective and softened my heart uh, towards the marginalized among us. It all began when I joined our youth in serving the homeless in San Francisco's Tenderloin District. Initially, my instinct was to decline the opportunity for my daughters to join Ariana. uh, Given the challenging scenes I witnessed daily working in Seattle, a city full of homeless drug addicts, um, drug deals, people in a zombie-like state, on the streets, and unsettling encounters that have been part of my routine, the worry for my daughters and the other kids was palpable. As I delved deeper into the details of the trip and spoke to my daughters about their passion for it, I felt a stirring in my own spirit. Despite my initial hesitations, I not only said yes, my daughters could go, but I took on the role of a leader as well. This decision presented unique challenges uh, for me personally, especially the need to soften my heart towards the homeless and those struggling with addiction. Preparing for the trip, I went into strategy and safety mode, ensuring both my daughters and the other students' well-being during the journey. Upon arrival at the YWAM in the heart of the Tenderloin, where dozens of homeless individuals were meandering around the street, and living in the tents right out front, the front door. I found myself closing off, anticipating the challenges before we ever ever began. Our first outreach involved sharing cups of hot chocolate with the neighbors of the Tenderloin. Leading a group of four, go- four guys, I, the extrovert, uh, stepped out of my own comfort zone, stopping to talk, um, watching people wake up from their trances and smile, inviting them to join us and learning their names and their stories. It was during this session serving hot chocolate that I began to realize that my own heart was starting to soften. I began to also realize that these are still people, people that Jesus loves and that I should love too. The following day, as we invited the neighborhood in for cereal and cartoons, I noticed a significant change in both my attitude and my own spirit. Conversations flowed more naturally, and I actively sought out stories from people I met the night before. My heart continued to soften as I witnessed the youth engaging, laughing, and praying for the Tenderloin neighbors. Watching my, water, uh, watching my daughter, Joy, talk to a guy named Kai Lee, listening and talking and engaging with love, no judgment, just love. Not only did it continue to transform my own heart, but I was so proud of my daughter and the other youth of Northview. The turning point for me really occurred during our prayer walk on Saturday through the neighborhood, particularly outside a place called the Power Exchange, which is the location where the first pornographic film was ever shown in the United States. The proximity of such darkness juxtaposed with a Christian school not ten feet away brought me to tears. My heart broke for the children subjected to such darkness daily, and as we prayed, prayed against the darkness, I felt my heart breaking. This was the single most difficult moment. I felt Jesus tearing away at the layers of protection that I had laid over my own heart. This trip has been a revelation Transforming my outlook from selfishly looking out for myself and my children to being open to seeing Jesus move in the lives of myself and the youth serving in the Tenderloin. I learned names, heard stories, and discovered the humanity behind those trapped in addiction. Eli, a community volunteer living in a tent right outside the front door of YWAM, struck a chord with a comment that we're all just one event away from homelessness a death of a child, the failing of a marriage, financial ruin loss of a job, or a house. It doesn't take a lot to find ourselves in the same position as those marginalized. This realization has fueled my commitment to finding ways to serve those on the fringe of society, individuals I would have looked away from just weeks ago. I'm inspired to emulate my new friend August, who, despite losing his brother to drugs and homelessness, dedicates his time to bless others. This could be as simple as providing a blanket to someone on the side of the road. Asking someone you come across their name. Asking if you can pray for them. Asking if they know Jesus and that he loves them and cares about them. My intention is to continue to find ways to be a consistent face in the crowd. To listen, pray, and love on those that Jesus loves. Thank you.
5: Good morning. My name is Roger Cecil. I was driver number two. I'm giving you number one. Yes. (laughs) Um, I've been here in Northview since 1999. I've been a Christian since actually 1980. Um, I, along with my dad, was baptized on May 18th, 1980. Some of you folks that were around then remember that that was the day Mount St. Helens blew, so, um, so I've been around a while in Christian circles. I was 12, 12 years old at the time I was baptized, but I would describe my faith as a very windy path, uh, eventually becoming a Jesus follower my junior year in college. Uh, my wife and I have been at Northview for 24 years. And we actually led the youth group back in the day when many people wore many hats. So um, I give you the background just because I've been around a while, but there's things that you just don't get. And so, why did I go to San Francisco? A couple of months ago at church, uh, I just remember sitting in a chair and they announced that the high school group was going to go to San Francisco. And they needed some drivers. Uh, my first thought was, I got it quoted here: "Why in the world would we take a bunch of kids to that godforsaken place?" That—that <laughs> that was my first thought. I don't know how the Holy Spirit speaks to you. He speaks differently to each of us, uh, but for me, uh, he presses a thought into my mind. It's not. It's not audible or anything like that. It's just, it's a thought. <clears throat> and it's unmistakable. So, anyway, that thought that was impressed on my mind was you need to volunteer. So, I knew it was the Holy Spirit nudging me. So, I texted uh, Zeb and kind of got things in motion. So, definitely a change in heart there. Um, what was my experience like? I got to know and reconnect with our youth and some of our church body. 12 hours in a car with a bunch of kids was quite the experience. Um, I mostly listened. Uh, One thing I picked up on that trip down is that today's kids are dealing with a lot of stress and anxiety. This was helpful for me to know before we went out on the streets to interact with homeless. Uh, We were given opportunities to to feed, to give drinks, to pray for, to talk to, and invite in the neighbors on the streets. We brought them into a warm place to stay, a church service, a bowl of cereal, cartoons, and conversation. Uh, I was I was overwhelmed by the warm response of the homeless people in this neighborhood. Uh, the command came into to focus for me. Um, the act of obedient, loving felt so natural and life-giving. The people on the street were so responsive and so engaging. I wondered, how had I miss so bad on this command? Um, why have I assumed that the homeless are just careless, dangerous people. Um, what did I learn? <clears throat> In the middle of our t- activities, we took the time to process our experiences as a group, and we also looked at a very dangerous verse. Actually, passage. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. I'm not going to read it, but uh, please read it. Just I'll, I'll say it again. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. It's the passage about the sheep and the goats. In it, we see God's heart for the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, those who need clothes, the sick, and the prisoner. We saw hungry, thirsty, strangers, those who needed clothes, and the sick in the Tenderloin District in San Francisco. Jesus' statement about these people is this, he's talking to, this is on Judgment Day, he's talking to the sheep, uh, the people who um, are inheriting God's kingdom, Uh, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers being the list of things I just mentioned, you did for me, Uh, what, what does that mean? Could it be that Jesus' heart for these people is so filled with compassion that when they are taken care of, he is taken care of? Do we care for Jesus when we care like this for others? To me, this, that statement uh, is filled with wonder. Um, Jesus is somehow <clears throat> inviting us to care for him by caring for others. Does Jesus need to be cared for? Um, I'm still processing some of these questions. It's just a wild verse. Um, anyway, so I have questions, but I also got a lot of answers. Um, did the Tenderloin change my life? I would say yes. The Tenderloin experience changed my perspective toward our, neighbor, our neighbors who uh, may be homeless. Uh, downtrodden and in need. It gave those neighbors a name, a face, a life story that I could relate with. It also gave me a love for them and a desire to obey the Lord in a a new area of my life. I am definitely still fleshing this out. I'm an older guy and it takes a little more to change me. So Um, as I take this new perspective home with me I think about my hometown Bothell. And both of my needy neighbors are often on freeway exits, street corners, and grocery store entrances, or they are homeless encampments that you hear about on the news in Seattle. Um, <clears throat> I have a little analogy here. Um, I'm a football guy, for, for you football fans, and my thoughts are often framed by my sports experience I know my, my friend Leanne that I met on the trip here. Um, she hates sports, but <laughs> Leanne, there's some good things about sports. Um, I currently have what would call a defensive mindset about this issue, about, about the homeless. Um, <clears throat> I read the Matthew 25 passage and I agree with it. And I agree that someone should be taking care of these people. But because I don't individualize it, I'm constantly caught off guard when encountering an occasional, uh, quote, beggar because I'm either late for a meeting or don't have pocket money or I shouldn't give recklessly to those who will just spend it on drugs. So I move on, having defended off the urge to help out in a meaningful way. To obey this truth was an offensive mindset means giving thought to and prayer to what I can do to take care of these neighbors. It might mean that I and some of my friends uh, would identify the needs of these people to determine where they are, when they're there, um, and what would be most helpful to them. We might make a plan to help them on purpose. So this is being offensive minded. I'm still praying about this and and talking uh, with a lot of folks at Northview, um, but it's something that's on my heart and and is at the forefront right now. So um, a couple lessons to pass on to you from this trip. I learned to be generous-hearted with my help to those in need. Instead of being skeptical that my efforts could go toward a fraud or being wasted on a con artist, I freely gave and listen to these people, whether they, whether they needed it or not. <clears throat> I was willing to be taken advantage of, even. It freed up my heart to be filled with grace. And lastly, if the Holy Spirit is unmistakably nudging you in your heart, step out of your comfort zone. <clears throat> For heaven's sake, step out. He will use it to teach you new things. He will use it to bring you new friends. He will use it to grow your faith. And he will breathe new life into you and into Northview. Thanks.
3: Wow. Roger, Ryan, thank you for the courage to share. Incredible. Incredible. You know, on the first morning after we arrive, we arrived late at night and we sent people out in teams to go have breakfast. We had just arrived the previous night. All we had done is get from our vehicle to the thing, across the street, to the, through the street, I think six feet, and then an orientation that probably scared people more than anything else. Um, and I had four people with me, and we sat at this little cafe, like 100 feet away, sitting at a little window across, right at the, uh, at, on the sidewalk. And as I looked at it, for the first time I started looking, these, these faces were like white with terror, the four people I looked at at this table. They were scared as can be, just shell-shocked. So what's going on? Like, we're just terrified. Like, why? They said, we've been told our whole lives to be scared of these people, to be afraid of them, to not go near them, to not talk to them, to not because they'll hurt you. They're drug addicts. I mean, you've got to protect yourself from them. And I said, have you ever seen people homeless For Like, yeah, have you ever seen people do drugs? Like, no, no, no. And everyone's just, I mean, it's just shocked eyes. And as I do this, I look outside and literally, if I could reach through the window, I could have touched them. They were so close. There were two gentlemen at that point, sharing either math or fentanyl, smoking, something right there. And I thought, what a great teaching opportunity. Um, I said, so you never seen one do drugs? They're like, no. And I'm like, well, look over my shoulder, and uh, you'll see two gentlemen um, taking part right there. And the girls looked over, and they're like, right? I'm like, okay, now stop. Is that scary? And you're like, no. Like, why not? They don't look scary. I'm like, they don't, do they? They're just trying to wipe away their pain, right? In fact, you go over and blow on them. They'd probably fall over right now, right? They're... They're the least scary people around, right? But I'll be honest, after that breakfast, I was, I was scared. So I'm like, we're taking these guys out to the street. Like, how in the world are we not going to have this whole thing fall apart? I was questioning the whole thing. I almost went to Zeb and said, dude, we might need to turn around. Like, this, is, this was a bad idea. How are we going to do this? Fast forward to 20, 48 hours later, we're setting up pop-up church on Sunday morning after a couple of amazing days. There was a lack of communication. Nothing happened. We didn't know what was going on. So we said, hey, it's so a this church. We just set up seats or a bunch of chairs in the street, blocking bunch of the street off. And they were just going to, and they just they invited the homeless. No one told us what to do. So we just, we, you know, just like, guys, just show up. Like, just, just go attend the church service. And the, the chairs began to be filled with homeless and drug addicts and the people we've been working with and people from that area. And not, literally no instructions were given. Just, just show up. Be around. And I began to watch our people, including the ones who had been at that very table with me, were moving out on their own, no one telling them what to do, and pursuing those in the chair, some who were just falling out because they were so high at the moment out of the chair, and pursuing them in conversation. I had tears just welling up my eyes. I just started shouting out gratitude to the Lord as we worshiped, and just tears streaming. I was just like, Lord, People who were just terrified 48 hours ago are now voluntarily pursuing the same thing. People with massive hearts of love, of, with, under no compulsion, but sheerly the delight of the love of Christ for those who don't know Him. Jesus, may we all be more like You. That's a heart for us as a church. That song we sang today, and we're going to sing again in just a minute. Holy Spirit, make me more like Jesus. Make me in Your image. Crucify my flesh. I'm going to be talking a lot more about this as I believe this is my whole hope going this is Lord spark something in our body may we be able to engage more practically and, and we'll be talking about what that looks like going forward but this is so much more than a monthly event heading out to Everett or Bothell or Seattle this is God wanting to increasingly align our heart to his maybe to serve the houseless maybe to care for widows in our midst maybe to care for the single moms there's so many in our midst who are hurting maybe to care for the single dads maybe to foster orphans, maybe to reconsider a vacation that's planned or a brand new car that's unnecessarily purchased, buy a used one instead and say, Lord, how would you have me use this to bless the community around me and the hurting around me? And for homework, everyone has homework today. If you're watching online, you can get it from our online resources, messages, today, and it's just prayer meditation. And I would encourage you, please take this sheet with you. Please pick it up right now, put it in your Bible, put it somewhere, put it in your pocket. And this week, you might take a couple mornings, it'll probably take an hour to do the whole thing. Read through these passages, and as you do, ask the Lord, Lord, what do you want to show me? And go through this and actually do this prayer walk as we do this together. Let's pray as we finish. We're going to sing that song again of Holy Spirit, make me more like you, Jesus. Jesus, we want to honor you with our lives. Crucify our flesh with yours, Jesus. Make us into your image. Draw us into your heart, Lord God. We want to love what you love, Jesus. We want to love who you love, Jesus. Use us as your hands and your feet and your voice. Break through the hardness of indifference Political views, bad theology, social media, fear, prejudices—all the garbage. I was just watching the news the other day, and they just—the way they spoke about it was literally on the ten o'clock news yesterday, Lord. And the way they spoke about it was just this horrific, zombie-like post-apocalyptic idea of all these people they were so afraid of they couldn't even cross the street. And here we had eleven-year-olds were hanging out with them, sitting next to them on the street, and pouring love into them. Jesus, not to be feared. To be loved, Jesus. Change our hearts, Lord God. Move us towards those you move towards.